New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989, and we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry. All right, well, hello, New Horizon. Uh, I was telling John, um, as I was preparing for last night and tonight, I said, you know, I felt this angst because I felt like someone needs to teach Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and I don't think I'm going to have time to teach all that. And uh, I'm just like, someone has to cover that. And then we had a little meeting, and somebody asked John, who's teaching in the mornings, was up here earlier, hey, what are you teaching on the first morning? And he was like, well, Romans 12 and Ephesians 4. And I'm like, oh, thank God. So uh, it's awesome to be in ministry with you, brother, and I'm excited about the fact that we get to lead in these days together. So excited to jump in tonight to this passage we've got in James chapter 1. But if you would, let me pray, uh, or would you pray with me? And I just want to just want to ask you, family, if you're up for it. I'm so grateful to be prayed for. Um, but I, wanna, I wonder if you could take a moment and pray for yourself. I was reading the Psalms this morning, and it was a prayer asking God to shine his, his face, his countenance on us for the, his glory among the nations. And I just wonder, as, before we begin tonight, if you're willing, if you could ask him, say, Lord, please teach me tonight. Maybe you talk to him like this all the time. Maybe you haven't in a long time. But just take a minute and you talk to God if you're up for it and say, Lord, please teach me tonight. Open my mind to understand. Open my heart to feel. And I'm asking for some lives to change their trajectory forever tonight. And I can't create that. And I really feel that tonight. So if you're willing, ask him, say, Lord, please teach me right now. And then if you would, please pray for me, that the Lord would use me and I'd be helpful to you. Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. Use this time and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I mentioned last night that I've had the opportunity to spend quality time with Navy SEALs. They are the elite... uh, Uh, special forces for the United States military. And several years ago, I had the opportunity to attend one of their training exercises. And I watched them uh, take down a house uh, filled with enemy combatants who were holding hostages. Now, as I went, it was my understanding I would be watching this from the safety of an observation deck. However, when I got there, uh, the commanding officer of theirs, I was standing with him. We watched the team approach the door of this building. And as they approached, he motioned with me to follow him towards the same door. And then as we got close, at some point he stopped and he goes, hey, I wouldn't get any closer than this if I were you. He said, when they blow that door off, sometimes the handle can shoot out like a bullet. I'd stay right here. I was like, yeah, okay. Like, I hadn't planned on being this close. And sure enough, the door blew open, they went charging in the room, and then in that moment, he hit me in the chest and said, let's go. And so we went charging in the room after them, right? Uh, Me in a t-shirt and sandals. Now, as soon as I passed through that door, two things struck me immediately, uh, metaphorically speaking. Uh, The first one was the chaos of the situation. There was smoke everywhere, flashbangs going off, shots fired, it was bedlam. But the second thing that struck me was the beauty of their strategy. They were aggressive, but graceful. They were purposeful, but patient. They would come to an open doorway and with barely a nod, two of them would swing out so that they would cover each other so they were never an open target, but immediately eliminate any threat. And within seconds, these guys had neutralized all hostiles, rescued all hostages, and brought peace where there was chaos. 
And I remember as I stood there, I thought, now that's the Christian life. Or it's meant to be. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. I, I don't think you have to journey with God very long before you realize the pursuit of intimacy with God occurs in the context of adversity. It's a fight. Something as simple as trying to read your Bible. Some of you have experienced that. Maybe in the new year you say, I'm going to read my word. And as soon as you open the Bible, all kinds of rival thoughts and competing affections come to the surface that make something that simple hard. Or others of us, you go, man, I just live in Romans 7. The good I want to do, I'm not doing it. And the evil I want to stop doing, that's what I keep doing. And we realize, hey, spirituality occurs within the context of adversity. And some of us, if we're honest, are discouraged by that situation. Some of you maybe came to Christ here at New Horizon once, and it just crossed your mind. I just, I thought it would be easier. You go, I don't know what I thought it would be. I just thought I would love all the time and be peaceful all the time and happy and fly around and sprinkle Jesus dust on my friends. Like, I don't know. But you come into the realization that, man, life is difficult. And then sometimes, I don't know if it happens here in America, we come to moments like this and, and there would be testimonies of someone would come on stage and, and they were wonderful stories. Someone would get up and grab the mic and say, I just want you to know I was addicted to drug known to man. Addicted to every single substance. And then I put my faith in Jesus Christ and was never tempted once by those same narcotics. And everyone applauds because that's amazing. But then some of us hear that and go, man, God pulled all your addictions out by the roots? He didn't even prune mine. They're as robust as ever. And some of us, if we're honest, there's not a great passion for the Lord when we sing because... Because there's this constant hum of a low-grade guilt humming in the background of our story. That a wet blanket of persistent failure is smothering the fire of our passion for the Lord. And if I can just be real with you, the last couple of years, modern life has not been conducive to human flourishing. That all the anxiety coming at us through our screens, the polarization politically that has brought all different kinds of fear and uncertainty into our lives, the comparison of our lives with pristine presentations of other people's lives on our screens, and in the midst of that, traditional buffers of community have unraveled, and so addiction's risen to take its place. And many of us, if we're honest, we've been struggling spiritually in this situation, and for some of us, we're not struggling well, and we're discouraged by the situation. Others of us, though, I think would say, no, Ben, I, I know spirituality is hard. Like, like, I read the Bible. I know when it talks about spirituality being a war, being a struggle. I, I understand the difficulty of my situation. I just need a strategy. I want to look more like the seals and less like you. I want to look trained and equipped to succeed in life. I don't want to be running around in sandals going, it's smoky in here. A and the, the systems and strategies you've used have not been working. I know for me, where I grew up, we used to go to summer camp every summer. Uh, and where I grew up going, you, you would go to summer camp, and the first couple days of summer camp, everyone lived crazy. I mean, we were all drinking beer, smoking cigarettes at camp. Yes, in Mississippi, we did that. But on the last night of camp, man, everybody got saved. After a few days of malnutritious food and very little sleep, all we teenagers were in an emotionally volatile state. And then the band would get us all stirred up. And then the speaker would get us fired up. And then by the end of the night, we were all crying, swaying, locking pinkies, singing friends are friends forever. And then right there at the emotional pitch, it was open mic night. 
And one by one, every single one of us would make these big promises of what we were going to do for God. Someone would stand up and say, I just want you all to know, I'm never going to sin again. And we'd be like, I don't think he is. I think he's had such a good week here at camp. I think it's over for him. Someone else would stand up and go, I just want you to know, I'm going to tell everyone on the planet about Christ. And we're like, he is prophesying right now. I can see it. And on we would go. And yet there wasn't a one of us that two weeks later hadn't broken every promise. And we sat in our bedrooms surrounded by the same addictions going, what's wrong with me? And for many of us, we settled into this uneasy peace with our depravity and said, you know what? I won't be the worst person you meet on the streets, but really living a holy life of having a passion for the Lord, that's for somebody else. I don't know if I can do that. And we've been discouraged by the situation and our strategies don't work. So let me tell you what I want to do tonight. I don't want to give you a pump-up speech. This isn't me telling you rah-rah to try harder. I, I almost want in an unemotional way get, get a survey of the battlefield and then a strategy. If, if life's a struggle, how do we struggle well? So our situation is it can feel like a war because it is a war. A pursuit of intimacy with God does happen in the context of adversity. We looked at that last night. As much as Jesus is presented as a lamb or a shepherd, he's called a warrior. That Jesus' arrival was a, a landed invasion. That we were told by John that the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. His first appearance in Genesis as the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. That Jesus' arrival was an invasion and it was a rescue operation. That he came to transfer us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. But not only was it an invasion and a rescue operation, what Jesus accomplished on that cross has now invited us into an ongoing mission. There's still a war going on. C.S. Lewis said it this way, enemy-occupied territory, that is what the world is. He said, Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in his great campaign of sabotage. We are in a war spiritually. But it's a war in which our king has won the decisive victory. It's like Israel. Do you remember when the Philistines encroached on their land? The nation of Israel was powerless. And then as their great hero, Goliath, came forward, they cowered under his might until David stepped forward. The man between, the warrior on their behalf. And what did David do? He slung that stone and through what looked like weakness, he overcame their greatest fear, Goliath. And when that dude hit the dirt, what did the Israelites do? They shouted the war cry, and they drove the Philistines out of their land. And we're the same way. In front of the onslaught of sin and in the looming shadow of the devil, we are powerless. But the son of David came forth, and through what looked like weakness, he disarmed the powers and authorities, made a public spectacle of them, triumphed over them on the cross, that he was the man between victorious for us. And as we've seen his victory over our greatest fear, what that does for us is it inspires us. Now we can drive the Philistines of fear and lust and pride out of our own hearts. And so I talked to so many people that when they come to Christ, they thought, man, I just, I had these desires, I had these struggles, these addictions, and I just thought God would take them away. And yet I came to Christ and still have them. So maybe Christ isn't powerless. Maybe this isn't real. And I say, no, Christ set you free, but he didn't set you free from the fight. He set you free for the fight. Before you were just a victim. Now you can be a victor. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, but he has called you to take part in his great campaign of sabotage. We're like the movie Master and Commander. 
I don't know if you saw that one starring Russell Crowe, where he and his men and their ship were charged with taking out Napoleon's greatest frigate. And in the crescendo of the movie, they sail up alongside of it, fire a cannon, destroy his mainmast, jump onto the deck, fight their way down to the hold where all these English sailors are held prisoner. And then in a triumphant moment, they break open the chains, open the gates, and the prisoners are set free. Huzzah! And as they step out of prison, they're handed a sword because the fight's still going on. And it's the same with you and me. Have you been set free from the penalty of sin? Yes. Have you been liberated by our king? Yes. Is there still a fight going on? Yes. And before you were a victim, now you can be a victor. But we got to figure out how to struggle well. And if I was to define our situation this way, spirituality for those who are in Christ, I would say once we put our faith in Jesus, the spiritual life is one movement with two parts. It's one movement with two parts. It's a movement away from something and a movement towards something. It's a movement away from ways of thinking and ways of living that isolate us from the intimacy which Christ purchased with God. And it's a movement towards ways of thinking and ways of living that promote the intimacy with God that Christ purchased. Uh, Old school theologians had a word for this. They called it sanctification. The root of that word sanctifies the word holy, which means set apart. And you hear those two pieces in it, to be set apart from something and set apart for something. Uh, Like in the Old Testament, in the temple, there were utensils that were holy. They weren't meant to be used for common use. They were used only in the worship of God. My wife is holy unto me. She belongs to me. No other man may touch her, right? Uh, Some of you have a coffee mug like this. It is holy unto you. No pagan lips may drink from it. It's one movement, two parts, away and towards. And old school theologians had words for each of these parts. This part they called mortification. There were certain ways of thinking and ways of living that used to be part of my life that now I must mortify, I must kill. They were a part of my life. Maybe they're still a part of my friend's life, but they don't belong in my life anymore. I'm not going to revel in what my king came to destroy, so I mortify these things. And they call this part vivification. But there's other things I want to bring to life. I want to vivify. I want to see grow and flourish. Uh, If we were using a gardening analogy... This would be the uprooting of weeds. There's certain ways of thinking and living that don't belong in my soul anymore. This would be the planting of grass or of flowers. There's other ways of thinking and feeling that I want to promote in my intimacy with God. If we were using a dating analogy, this would be me like taking my wife on dates, preferably to a restaurant that's not ringed with TVs so I can listen to her with my face. This would be not doing things that isolate us from intimacy, like yelling at her or dating other women. I don't do these things. I do these things away and towards. That's our situation. Now, let me clarify. What I'm not saying is, so this is the devil side of the stage, and this is the God side of the stage. So let's get on that God side, folks. That's not what I'm saying. Because that makes it sound like God's over here waiting for you to get your act together. And that's not the gospel. Jesus said, if you put your faith in him, he said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He is with you. And yet I know my wife won't divorce me, but I can feel miles apart from her. Even when we're standing next to each other, if I haven't done the work to promote the intimacy that's available in our covenant. 
So the fight for the Christian is the battle for an unrestrained intimacy with God. That's our battle, right? Uh, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee from youthful lusts, pursue righteousness, joy, love, and peace, along with those who call out to the Lord out of a pure heart. That's our situation. But this does not happen in a vacuum. We have an enemy who hates our king, so he hates you. So I remember my first day of middle school. That's the way we divide it up, you know, in the States. After fifth grade, you go to a new school in sixth grade. And I was so excited going to sixth grade because I was going to ride the bus with my older brother, who by every measure was endlessly cool. Uh, And I remember when we got on the bus, my brother walked to the back of the bus because that's where the cool kids sat. I, being his relation, was cool by proxy, so I made my way to the back as well. And yet as I walked there, suddenly this kid jumped up right in front of us and got his face right in my face. And this was before I understood that's what some guys do when they want to fight. I just thought he had proximity issues. Like, why are our noses touching? What are you doing? And I remember he looked at me and he said, are you Cole Stewart's brother? And I said, yeah. And he said, I hate your brother. I said, okay. And then he said, so I hate you. Turns out that this kid, Marvin, was a bully. Got some emotional needs met by picking on little kids. There's this one problem. Marvin had chosen to play American football. And my brother played football. And there was a day at practice where my brother was running with the ball and Marvin attempted to tackle him. And my brother hit him so hard that Marvin flew through the air uh, and then made squealing sounds like a piglet. Uh, which when you're a bully, kind of cramps your style. So fast forward to the bus, he says, I hate your brother. And then he says, so I hate you. And then he put his finger on my face and said, you'll look good with a cigarette burn here. Pushed my face. Then from behind him, we heard a voice say, Marvin. He kind of straightened up. But when he sat down, he said, it's going to be a long year, little brother. Now question, why did he hate me? I hadn't done anything to him. I'll tell you why. Because I look like the one who shamed him. And when you associate your life with Christ, you're not liberated from an onslaught from the enemy. You're in some sense even more of a target because you have knit together your life with the one who made a public spectacle of him. And the devil is powerless to do anything against our God, but the way he can twist the knife in our Savior is by getting us to willfully walk away from the intimacy with God Christ purchased on the cross. So we have an enemy. So let's look at his strategy, and then we'll look at ours, right? Let's look specifically at what he knows about us and then what he does. So we're moving from situation, now we're getting into strategy, his strategy, then ours. Let's look at what he knows. And basically what he knows is you. He knows your wiring. He knows that you have a mind, cognitive processes, reasoning mechanism. He knows you have affections, that you have an inclination towards or an inclination away from certain things. And he knows you have the will, the ability to act, to step out and to do something. He knows that we have a mind to think with, a heart to feel with, and hands and feet to move with. We're mind, affections, and will. And he knows your particular tendencies. He's watched the game film on you. So what's his goal? What's his strategy? His goal, we saw last night, is to get you to sin. That you will take a willful step 
away from intimacy with God that you were made for in which you are most alive. He wants you to take, you to take a step away from intimacy with your God. Why on earth would you do that? Why would you participate in that suicidal abandonment of joy? Well, what he has to do is he has to solicit thoughts to your mind that stir your affections to make that look attractive because affections is the engine upon which our actions run. So he'll solicit thoughts to the mind to stir the affections so that when we enact the will, we go someplace we were never meant to be. But that soliciting of thoughts to the mind for the stirring of our affections, the Bible calls this temptation. Temptation. And you say, Ben, where are you getting this? Well, from the passage we read in James. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That lured is my mind's attention. Enticed is my heart's affections. That each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. You go someplace you were never meant to go. So ladies... I was in college ministry for years with young ladies, and I talk to them all the time about this. This is how it'll work for you. You'll be getting ready someday in the morning, and as you're getting ready for work or for school, the thought will be solicited to your mind, I'm single. And as that thought's solicited to your mind, you contemplate it and go, that's true. I'm neither dating nor currently married. And yet as you think that thought, you think, but I want to be with someone. I want to be married. And then an Adele song comes on. And as it does, she's singing about hello from the outside. And you're like, I don't even know what she's saying, but I don't want to be on the outside. I, I want to be with someone. And, and then you head your way to work, and, and you see the couples walking hand in hand. And you see the birds going two by two. And you go, everyone has someone but me. <laughs> and as those thoughts are solicited to your mind and they begin to stir your affections, you'll be propositioned with a thought, and you'll date a loser. Someone who's beneath you morally. You know he doesn't care about the interests of your great king. But you got so wrapped up, you honestly believe this is the best you can do. And a whole cascading scenario of tragedies await you. Because you wound up in a situation you were never meant to be. I'm not here to shame you. I don't want to shame anybody. Shame impedes strategic thinking. I just want you to see what happens. How does he work? He solicits thoughts to the mind to stir our affections so that we enact the will and arrive in a place where there is no life. There's only death. You're not meant to be here. Because here's the principle. Here's the quote. What you think about is what you care about. And what you care about, you will chase. What do you entertain in your mind? It will determine what you love and what you become. So I counsel men all the time, and I say, this is how it happens to you. You'll be getting ready for bed at night, and the thought will solicit to your mind, you should get on a screen and look at naked people. And as it consults your affections, you go, naked people? Okay. And that's about it for you. It says, each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The best self-knowledge you can have is how he gets me. If each one of us are tempted by our own desire, he tailors it for us. I mean, look at the wording. He even uses the word lure. What do you do with a lure? You present it in front of a fish. And when you lure him, what do you want to do? You don't just want to get his mind's attention. You want to stir his affections. So maybe you get a lure that looks like a frog. Maybe you swim it along sideways so it looks wounded and delicious. 
And what do you want? You want, that fi- you want to interrupt that fish mid-sentence with his buddies. You want to be like, anyway, so I says to him, well, hey, hey there, little buddy. Look at you. And you don't just want to get his attention. You want to stir his affection so that when he enacts the will, you got him. And he never even saw the hook. And it never crossed his mind there was a sentient being behind this whole scenario. And yet some of you may go, a frog? Really? That's what does it for you? Gross. <laughs> like if you're tempted by that, I don't even know how you can call yourself a real fish because ew. And the devil goes, that's fine. I'll just get a different lure for you. And you go, ooh, shiny. And off you go, right? <laughs> Each one is tempted by his own desire. All of us are going to deal with it, folks. There's no perfect people in here. Some of the best self-knowledge you can have is how does he get me? Sun Tzu said it in the art of war. If you know your enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. But if you know neither your enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. Know how he gets to you. And so know how you can respond. So what do we do? Let me give you three strategies of how we do the mortification piece. And we'll talk vivification more tomorrow. How do we struggle well? The first one I would say is we eliminate the moment. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. This is what he told his disciples. I want you to watch this playing out and pray. And notice what he says. He doesn't say pray that you don't enter into sin. He says pray that you don't enter into temptation. If this always leads here, then I want to watch and pray that I don't enter there. So I had a buddy years ago that he had a friend come to him and confide to him that he was having problems in his marriage. He and his wife were fighting a lot uh, verbally, and it was becoming shouting matches, and it even gotten physical. My friend told him, man, you never put your hands on your wife in a hurtful way. And you never speak to her in a harsh way. We, we need the church to come around you. We need counselors to come around you to help your marriage. We need to deal with this. But then in that conversation, he told the friend, how does it happen? When you get to these moments of struggle, what goes on? And as his buddy thought about it, he said, you know, Thursday nights, we go to this bar, and uh, we drink too much, and she never wears as many clothes as I think she should, and these guys hit on her, and I don't like that she doesn't rebuff their advances, and so I get mad, and then she gets mad, and so we argue there, and then we get home, and then the argument escalates from there. So my friend told him, hey, like, there's a lot to unpack here. And we need some counsel around this and the church around this. But maybe as a first step, if arriving in that scenario with that community at that bar always leads you there, maybe don't go there together anymore. And he said his buddy had never thought about it. He said he was like, but it's tequila Thursday. (laughs) But it's not worth sinning over, man. If that leads you there, watch and pray that I don't go there. Or I talk to young men all the time that struggle with pornography. In America, statistically, 86% of young men look at it on a monthly basis, right? It's pervasive, and I hate it. I don't hate people who struggle with it at all. I love you. I hate what porn does to so many people because I watch it steal a sense of moral agency from men. And I love watching guys, when they get free from it, how energized they are to be men who are active with a sense of agency in the world. 
But I talked to a lot of young guys that will confess to me and struggle with pornography. And I was like, yeah, man, it's so common in your generation. And the enemy loves to keep it a secret. And as they say in addiction recovery, you're only as sick as your secrets. Let's shine the light on it. Where does it get you? I don't want to shame you. Look at the strategy. Where do you struggle with it? And I talked to so many guys that are like, it's in my bed, late at night, in front of a screen. I can't help it. And I say, well, man, well, Romans says make no provision for the flesh. And you're at your weakest, most vulnerable moment, and you've got a phone, the World Wide Web, right at your head? That's making provision. That's like an alcoholic pouring a glass of scotch every night and laying it on the bedside table and go, no, I'm not going to drink you. Bad strategy. So I say, man, if that always leads you here, let's get the screens out of your bedroom. Let's get them away from your intimate and vulnerable places. Let's move them away. That's not going to solve all of it. There's deeper things here, but let's start there. And I'll tell guys that and they'll go, but it's my alarm clock. We'll buy an alarm clock. They, They practically give them away now. I'll buy you an alarm clock. It's not worth sitting over. If this always leads there, let me walk away from this. Do you see it? Now, incidentally, this is a communal endeavor. Some of the best things you can do is get some buddies you can confide in, that you can struggle well with. I remember for me, there were some besetting sins in my life I just couldn't beat with discipline. And finally, I just felt like the Lord was pushing on me from James. If you confess your sins one to another and pray for one another, you might be healed. And I felt like the Lord was like, man, you went out of that. You need to turn the lights on and confess, not to everybody, but to a trusted brother. And the Lord kept bringing this guy to mind. And I was like, Lord, I don't want to confess to him. It's kind of important that I'm awesomer than him. I sort of enjoy the moral superiority. And so if I confess to him, it'll mess up the awesomeness index. I can't do this. But then I realized... I wanted practical holiness, not perceived holiness. You know what I mean by that? Perceived holiness is when your life's a mess behind closed doors. But when people see you at church, they go, how are you doing? You go, hallelujah, praise the Lord. God is good all the time. And then meanwhile, you're a mess backstage. I was like, I don't want to be fake. I want integrity. It's built off the word integer, one. I want to be one guy backstage and on stage. And so I confess to this guy all of of my most vulnerable moments. And I felt very fragile. And I'll never forget in that moment, I, I confessed to him everything I struggled with. And, and he looked at me and he goes, well, here's mine. And they were different. But after he shared them, I remember when he was done, I looked at him and said, you're sick, man. Like, you got problems. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't say anything. Come on. <laughs> I looked at him and we were both like, well, what do we do now? And I'll tell you what we did. We, we got on our knees and we prayed. And we did that for years. And we would call each other all the time, pray for each other all the time. Th- there were days he would fast. He would go without food for no other reason than to pray for Christ to be formed in me. You ever had someone do that for you? That's power. I discovered a world of freedom I did not think was possible but it was because a buddy of mine helped me see where I was vulnerable and close the door on those moments. Moving faster, number two would be to paddle downstream, look down the road. That's what James tells us to do. Desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. Before I engage in a particular activity, I need to look downstream and say, if I get in this boat, if I take the ride, if I'm going with these desires, where will they lead me? And is that where I wanna be? Alcoholics call it thinking through the drink. If I have one and another and another, where am I going to end up? And is that the life I want? 
get in the boat and say, man, if I dive in, if I, if I indulge these thoughts, indulge these feelings, go on this ride, are there waterfalls in the distance? You look downstream. But it's interesting, the way James says it is, he doesn't use boating imagery. And actually, he doesn't even use fishing imagery. Uh, the word desire in Greek is a feminine word. They have masculine and feminine words like, like Spanish. Desire is a feminine word. And he says, each one is lured and enticed by desire. And then desire, when you consummate with her, it says she conceives and gives birth to sin. He uses birthing imagery. Sin's a female word too. He says, and sin, when she's fully grown, brings forth death. And he says, man, before you jump in the back seat with these desires, you got to see she's going to have a baby, and the baby's called death, which is crazy because birth is the arrival of life. And James picks this disturbing image. It's really weird. But he does that to shock us. He does it to break the spell. Because sin always looks attractive in the dark. And we got to turn the lights on. I have a buddy who's a pastor that he has a prayer closet uh, in his office. And I remember I was using it once because I was preaching at his church. And I went in there to pray. And as I turned around on the doorway, on the way out, there were all these newspaper clippings of pastors who had failed morally. Real upbeat wall. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, ugh, like why does he have this? You know, it's like a morbid curiosity. But then I looked right next to the door. There was a newspaper clipping. It was a picture of a famous American pastor who had... Slept with prostitutes, swallowing drugs, done some really crazy stuff. But the picture was a moment where the, the cameras were around him, the paparazzi were there. He was still denying it all and trying to spin the story. And so he's got a smile on. But my buddy had circled his wife's face and written next to it, look at her eyes. And I realized, man, this, this wall is just for him. It's not for anybody else. And he had this picture by the door because you could see the wife's face that she was looking a million miles away or at nothing at all because she just couldn't fake it anymore. And my friend knew that, hey, ministry is hard. It's exhausting. And if you don't pick a positive oasis, the enemy always presents you a destructive one. And he'll make a relationship look like life that in the end leads to death. And my buddy just goes, before I walk out and some cute girl starts to tell me things I want to hear... Let me just look downstream at her eyes and say, I don't want to go there, so I'm not going here. I paddle downstream and say, if I don't want to end up there, let me get out here. I have never fought a lion, but if I do, I want to fight a baby one. <laughs> it's easier to fight temptation when it's small. Don't wait downstream. Go to war now. Right? We paddle downstream. And then the last thing is, we paddle upstream, trace it back. Because temptations get an emotional force from somewhere. Why does this thing feel so relieving? Why does this, this pill, this drug, this experience, I know is going to obliterate some pain, going to give me a little bit of happiness? Why do I go to these things I know are broken again and again when I know they're not going to satisfy me? What makes them attractive? There's something driving it emotionally. And James says, well, look upstream at what's giving power to this river. He says, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. That every temptation ends in destruction, but it begins with deception. But what's the lie? Notice he doesn't say, don't be deceived. You know, heroin's not really good for you in the long run. Like, he doesn't point downstream. He says, don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from your Father of lights, in whom there's no shadow or variation due to change. He says, the lie 
that launches a million sins is the belief that your God is not a good dad who loves you. When, when you don't figure that out, when you don't know what it is to enjoy the inexhaustible love of God, you will go to drink from many broken streams. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. Notice when Satan came to Eve, he didn't start with the fruit. He didn't say, Eve, you know what I've been thinking about today? Fruit. You know what I've been thinking about? How good it is. I already cut some up. Let's jump into this. He doesn't do that. Where does he start? Hey, Eve, did God really say you can't eat from every tree you want? Yeah, Eve, just brief observation. It seems like your religious commitment is keeping you from some pretty exciting experiences. It seems like your commitment to this deity is keeping you from really enjoying your life, Eve. That's my uh, assessment. And I wonder if it's because he doesn't really care about you. I wonder if it's because there's some real life-enhancing experiences that you could have if you rebel against his restrictive commandments. I'm just telling you, Eve, you got to get away from the author of life to really enjoy life. Before he can make sin look attractive, he has to make God look ugly. Fight the battle there. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift comes from your Father above. Let me end with this. The greatest defense is a good offense. The greatest defense is a good offense. The Puritans used to say, how do I dislodge a beautiful thing from the human heart? I replace it with a more beautiful thing. So I used to hate the song, How He Loves Us. Do you all know that song, How He Loves Us? Is it safe to say I didn't like it? Some people have strong feelings about that. I didn't like it. And I, I, I questioned myself why, because so many people did. I was like, is it the Doppler effect way we sing it? How we love us. And I was like, no, it's not that. Is it the lyrics? Like, yeah, I'm not a tree. And then I realized, no, it's not either of those things. There's, there's actually nothing wrong with the song. I said, my struggle with the song is I don't really believe it. As someone from a broken home with, with a tough background, I remember hearing that, and, and they just make you say over and over again, oh, how he loves me, oh, how he loves me, oh, how he loves me. And after a while, it started to sound like a cruel joke. And then I had a kid. And I remember as we uh, had our first little baby girl, uh, I, I would wake up with her at like the 2, 3 a.m. shift when she would wake up. And I remember one morning, early morning, just sitting there holding this little girl. And while I was holding her, suddenly I felt this pain in my chest, like, like it was caving in. I was like, what, what is happening? Like, what is this? And I was like, it's love for you. <laughs> and then I instantly felt the limits of language. I was like, there's no word to encapsulate this. I love you. Sounds way too small. There's no poem. There's no rhyme. There's no song to communicate to you how I feel. And it's crazy because you've done nothing. You haven't complimented a sermon. You're not pitching in around the house. You're nothing but noise and need. <laughs> but to say I'd die for you sounds cheap. And I just remember thinking, I wish there was some way to get into that little brain how explosive these feelings are in my chest of how much I love you. I wish she could know how her father feels. And I remember as soon as I said that, the Holy Spirit did one of those weird little moves he does where he goes, hey, question. Do you think you're a better father than God? Do you think you have a greater capacity to love your child than he has for you? And I realized I had to repent of an unbiblically low view of the love of God. He's a father who loves you. And of his own will, he brought you forth by the word of truth. I love that. Sin's not the only one having babies in James. 
It says exhibit A is the father out of his own will. That means he wanted to. He didn't have to. He wanted to. Out of his own will, he made you alive. He brought you forth by the word of truth. Someone preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to you and you believed it and God brought you into his family and he loves you. And the more you enjoy that love of God, the more you feast on him, the more you enjoy him, the things of earth grow strangely dim. How do you dislodge a beautiful thing from the human heart? You replace it with a more beautiful thing. How did Romeo get rid of Rosalind? How did Romeo get rid of Rosalind? Does anyone remember Rosalind? Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet. Do you remember at the beginning, he's talking to his buddy Benvolio and he's pining away about Rosalind, how much he loves Rosalind, how much he cares about Rosalind. And finally his buddy Benvolio gets so frustrated, he's like, dude, I'm taking you to a party tonight. There's like a hundred girls there hotter than Rosalind. It's like a rough translation, but look it up, it's there. <laughs> and Romeo says, the all-seeing sun has ne'er met her match since first the world begun. Whoa, there's no one hotter than Rosalind. But then he goes to the party, and he sees Juliet. And that night, he sneaks into her yard and says, but soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon, which is already sick and pale with grief, that thou, her maid, art far more fair than she. Rosalind, who? <laughs> and let me tell you something. The best defense to good offense, best way to mortify sin is to go to the fountain of living pleasure. That's what Augustine found. Augustine, who was addicted to power and money and sex, realized I had to let them go. And then he wrote in his journey how sweet it was all at once for me to be rid of those fruitless joys I once so feared to lose. You drove them from me and you took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. Father, I thank you that you love us. You're honest enough with us to tell us we're sinners and the things that we're enticed by are leading us to death. But you don't want to shame us. You want to set us free. So, Lord, I pray for the brothers and sisters here tonight who've never put their faith in Jesus. I pray they would know that, that sin and death need not be the end of their story. The gospel's too good for that. The cross is too strong. You put your faith in Jesus Christ. He delights in drawing people from death to life, of his own will, bringing you forth as the first fruits of his creatures. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, start tonight. Pray it right now. Say, God, I need you. Forgive me cleanse me, adopt me, then please come to my right, your left. There's a prayer table out here, prayer tent. We'd love to pray with you. And some of us, if we talked about this battle with sin, this struggle, I just pray the enemy would not bury you in shame. That is not our Father's business to shame you. But I pray you would open your eyes to see, hey, there's some things I'm entangled in that are not giving me life and I want freedom. And I want to challenge you, family, not to make promises to God of what you're going to do. I just want you to thank him that you're forgiven. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I want you to ask him to give you a vision of how to walk out of those things. Maybe it's confession to a friend. Maybe it's moving some screens in your home. Maybe it's saying, I knew I needed to get out of this friendship group. It's time to start rearranging my schedule. Maybe it's just having the courage as the began begins to play to 
step out these doors to the prayer tent and say, I don't have any answers. I just need someone to pray for me. And just know, friend, this is a safe place for that. There's no perfect people here. But all of us need grace and have find power in confessing to one another to be healed. You're safe here. Father, I pray you'd make new horizon a house of healing, a place where we joyfully let loose of tin idols to grab loose, grab hold of a holy God. Lord, meet with us now as we pray, as we pray on our own and talk to you and pray together and respond to you. Lord, turn us loose, set us free, and fill us with an unexpected joy in your presence. Thank you for listening to this talk. If you would like to know more about New Horizon, please visit our website at newhorizon.org.uk.